Section 24 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marion McIntyre. Section 24. The Little Pâtés. That Sunday morning, the pastry-cook Soreau of the Rue Touraine called his apprentice and said to him, Here are Monsieur Bonnicot's little pâtés. Carry them to him, and return at once, for they say the army from Versailles has entered Paris. The boy, who understood nothing of politics, put the pâtés, still warm, into his tart dish, the tart dish in a white napkin, and, balancing pâtés, dish, and all, upon his cap, set out on a run for Ile Saint-Louis, where Monsieur Bonnicat resided. The morning was glorious, sunshine everywhere. That warm May sunshine that fills the fruit shops with bunches of lilacs and clusters of cherries. In spite of the distant fusillade and the bugle calls at street corners, all that venerable quarter of the Marais preserved its peaceful physiognomy. There was a suggestion of Sabbath in the air, Voices of children were heard in the courtyards. Tall girls were playing shuttlecock in front of their doors, and that little white outline trotting along the deserted street, a delicious perfume of hot pâté accompanying him, succeeded in imparting to this morning of battle a certain naive and Sunday aspect. All the animation of the quarter seemed to be there in the Rue de Rivoli. Cannons were dragged about. Men were working upon the barricades. At every step, one came across groups of the National Guards, very much busied. But the pastry-cook's boy did not lose his head. These youngsters are so accustomed to making their way through a crowd, so used to the hubbub of the street. It is on feast days, when all is noise and bustle, on New Year's days and Shrove Sundays, that they are kept busiest running about. Revolutions are scarcely a surprise to them. It was really delightful to see that little white cap insinuating its way through kepis and bayonets, avoiding collisions, keeping that tart dish nicely balanced, sometimes hastening, sometimes compelled to move slowly, when one could plainly see it wished to rush on. What did it care about the battle? The chief thing was to reach the bonicars just as twelve struck, and to receive as quickly as possible the little pourboire which was waiting there upon a shelf in the anteroom. Suddenly the crowd began to push and shove terribly, and the pupils of the Republic passed by at a run, singing. They were from twelve to fifteen years of age, decorated with chassepots, red girdles, and big boots. No Mardi Gras masqueraders running along a muddy boulevard, wearing paper caps and carrying a grotesque pink shred of a parasol, could have been prouder than they to be disguised as soldiers and this time the jostling was so great that the pastry-cook's boy found it difficult to maintain his equilibrium. But his tart dish and he had slid along the ice so many times, had taken part in so many games of hopscotch upon the sidewalk, that the little pâtés had ceased to feel any fear. Unfortunately, all that excitement, those songs and red girdles, and his admiring curiosity, suddenly inspired the pastry-cook's boy with a desire to go farther in such fine company, and passing beyond the Hôtel de Ville and the bridges of Ile Saint-Louis without even perceiving them, 
he himself borne onward following that dust-stained, wind-swept, mad procession, how far he was carried, I do not know. For at least twenty-five years, it had been the custom of the Bonicars to partake of those little pâtés every Sunday. Exactly on the stroke of twelve, when the entire family, large and small, were assembled in the dining-room, a lively cheery ring of the bell was heard, and everyone would say, Ah, it is the pastry cook. Then there would be great bustling, the movement of chairs would be heard, the rustling of Sunday frocks. The children distributed themselves joyously about the table already set, and all these happy bourgeois would seat themselves around those little pâtés symmetrically piled upon a silver warming dish. But upon that Sunday, the bell remained mute. Scandalized, Monsieur Bonicard looked at his clock, a venerable affair surmounted by a stuffed heron, a clock which never in its lifetime had been either a moment fast or a moment slow. The children stared through the windows, watching the corner of the street where the pastry-man's apprentice usually appeared first. Conversation languished, and that hunger which noon with its twelve strokes of the clock usually awakes overcame everyone, making the dining-room seem very large, very dreary, in spite of the antique silver gleaming upon the damask cloth, and the napkins twisted in the form of tiny horns, white and stiff. Several times already the old servant had come to whisper in her master's ear that the roast was burnt, the little green peas overcooked, but Monsieur Bonicar was determined not to sit down at table without the little pâtés, and furiously angry with Sureau, he determined to go and learn for himself what this unheard-of delay might mean. As he went out, brandishing his cane and very angry, his neighbors gave him warning. Look out, Monsieur Bonicard. People say the Versailles have entered Paris. But he would hear nothing, not even the sounds of the fusillade which were coming from Neuilly across the water, not even the alarm gun of the Hôtel de Ville which shook every window of the quarter. Oh, that's Soreau, that's Soreau. And in the excitement and speed of his walk, he talked to himself, imagining that he was already in the middle of the shop, hammering the floor with his cane, making the glass of the showcase and the plates of plum cake tremble. The barricade of Pont-Louis-Philippe interrupted his anger for a moment. Some communists with ferocious mien were there, sprawling in the sunlight upon the pavement, whose stones had been removed. "'Where are you going, citizen?' The citizen explained, but the story of the little pâtés appeared to arouse suspicion especially as Monsieur Bonicard wore his fine Sunday coat, his gold spectacles, and had every appearance of being an old réactionnaire. "'He is a spy,' said the Feder. "'He must be sent to Rigaud.' Whereupon, very willingly, four men, who were not at all sorry to leave the barricade, drove the exasperated and wretched man before them with the butt-ends of their guns. I do not know how they managed it, but half an hour later, they were all captured by the line and were sent to join a long file of prisoners who were about to be marched to Versailles. Monsieur Bonicard protested more and more, raised his cane and related his tale for the hundredth time. 
Unfortunately, that story concerning the little pâtés appeared so absurd, so incredible in the midst of the great upheaval of the city, that the officers merely smiled at it. That's a fine story, old fellow. You shall explain all about it at Versailles. And through the Champs-Élysées, white with the smoke of repeated firings, the column moved on between two lines of chasseurs. The prisoners marched five abreast, their ranks closed and compact. To prevent the procession from scattering, they were compelled to walk arm in arm, and as the long column passed on, that human herd trampling the dust of the road, the sound resembled that of a heavy rainstorm. The unhappy Bonicar believed he must be dreaming. Panting, perspiring, dizzy with fear and fatigue, he dragged himself on at the end of the column, between two old hags who reeked of petroleum and brandy, and those about him who heard those words, pastry cook, little pâtés repeated again and again, amid imprecations, thought he had gone mad. And indeed, the poor man had lost his head. As they ascended the road, descended it again, when the ranks of the procession would open a little, did he not fancy he saw yonder, in the dust which filled the open space, the white jacket and the cap of that boy of Soros? And ten times at least Monsieur Bonnicar seemed to see him upon the road. That tiny white flash passed before his eyes, as if to mock him. Then it would disappear again in the midst of a surging multitude of figures, some clad in uniforms, some in blouses, and others in tatters. At last, just at sunset, they arrived at Versailles, and when the crowd saw that old spectacle bourgeois, haggard, untidy, and covered with dust, with one accord they discovered that he was a scoundrel of the deepest dye. They said, It is Félix Epia. No, it is de l'Escluse. The chasseur of the escort had some difficulty in conducting him safe and sound to the courtyard of the Orangerie. There, for the first time, that wretched procession was allowed to scatter, to stretch their limbs on the ground and to regain their breath. Some were half asleep. Others were swearing, coughing, weeping. But Bonnicat neither wept nor slept. Seated upon a stone stairway, his head buried in his hands, three-fourths of him dead from hunger, shame, and fatigue, his mind reverted to all the incidents of that unhappy day, his departure from home, his companions at table anxiously waiting, the table standing until evening, expecting him still, and then the humiliation, the injuries, those gun-butts directed at him, and all this merely on account of an unpunctual pastry-cook. Monsieur Bonnicar, here are your little pâtés, a voice nearby suddenly exclaimed, and raising his head, the worthy man was much surprised when he saw that pastry-cook's boy of Soros, who, it seems, had been captured along with the pupils of the Republic, uncover and present to him the tart-dish concealed behind his white apron. And thus it happened that, in spite of the emmut and imprisonment, upon this Sabbath, as on every other, Monsieur Bonnicar ate his little pâtés. End of section 24 Recording by Linda Johnson